following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You know, there's a difference between enjoying something and wanting something. You might really enjoy fine art or fast cars, but it's a completely different experience to actually want those things for yourself. I mean, who wants to be responsible for all of that? But the difference between enjoying on one hand and wanting on the other really comes out in our relationships with other people. For example, you could very easily say, I love that guy. And in saying so, you're expressing how much you enjoy being around someone sometimes. But for many reasons, you may not necessarily want that guy to move next door or to marry your daughter or into your family or uh, to get a job in your organization or company. On the flip side, you may really want somebody to join your team or work with you or help you on a project, even though... You don't really enjoy him or her as a person. You see, it's easy to separate what someone can do for us from what someone is to us. And if you're honest with yourself, uh, you should recognize that this separation is nowhere easier to commit uh, than in your relationship with the Lord, and particularly in prayer. Jesus certainly recognized the danger of this as he instructed his disciples in wise living here in the Sermon on the Mount, in what he referred to as his uh, Father's kingdom and his righteousness in Matthew 6, 33. And as we've come to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has set before his disciples in the opening verses two matters of wisdom in human relationships in the kingdom. In Matthew 7, 1 to 5, which we just read, he cautions his disciples and us against being rash or hypercritical and therefore hypocritical of others in their judgments. And then in verse 6, he steers his followers away from the opposite danger of being gullible and careless with other people, especially when handling uh, the good news of God's salvation. In a word, our Lord's concern in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think extends even uh, well into chapter 7, is to teach his disciples what heavenly wisdom looks like in their various relationships to their brothers, sisters, neighbors, and friends. In chapter 5, he gave them the picture of human flourishing in the kingdom. In chapter 6, particularly showing what it looks like to relate to God uh, from a heart filled with the Spirit, sincere in devotion and not hypocritical. And now in chapter 7, looking at kingdom relationships between man and man and what wisdom looks like in that setting. Well, do any of you this morning lack wisdom in your relationships? Do any of you want to acquire wisdom? wisdom in your relationships, both in the church, but even with your neighbors and your friends and family members outside the church. And to the point, are you looking for it? Are you seeking for it? Are you asking God for it? If you are, then what Jesus says next in verses 7 through 11 contains the key for relational wisdom. The not-so-secret ingredients for wisdom in human relationships are heavenly ones, as Jesus says. us. They are called in our passage, good things, which God our Heavenly Father graciously gives to His children. 
And we are to ask, seek, and knock for these heavenly good things from our good heavenly Father, as Jesus makes plain. Well, in our text this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of divine wisdom, who is wisdom himself come down in human flesh, and righteousness and holiness and truth, he directs his disciples and us to persist in pleading with God for the good things necessary for wisdom because God is perfectly good to his children. What is Christ's direction here? I'll repeat it. Persist in pleading with God for the good things necessary for wisdom because God is perfectly good to his children. He gives a command and he gives a rationale or a reason. So as we work through this passage before us, uh, verses 7 to 11, as we pull it out of uh, this larger section of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to consider three parts to Christ's teaching. First, how to plead with God in verse 7, because that's how Jesus starts, how to plead with God. And then why to plead with God in verses 8 through 10. And finally, what to plead with God or what to plead from God in verse 11. So the how of pleading, the why of pleading, and the what of pleading, which Christ sets out before us. In the first place, we'll start at the beginning where Jesus starts in verse 7, how to plead with God. He says, ask, seek, and knock. This is a command to pray that Jesus issues to his disciples. He's already gone over prayer in chapter 6, but now he's returning to it in a different context. He commands them to pray by emphasizing how it is they are to pray. He describes both the character and the confidence of our pleading with God in prayer. He describes the character of our pleading with God in these three directives that he gives. Ask, seek, and knock. Note in the first place that it would be accurate, accurate to translate these actually as, and I'll, I'll put on my, my, uh, my southern-ism here, y'all, all y'all, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. The character of Christian prayer, it's not a one-and-done kind of deal. As made clear in Christ's direction to his disciples, Christians are to persist in prayer. This is iterative. That is, it's something you do over and over and over again over time. But how did I begin that? All y'all, you don't just pray on your own. In the second place, the character of Christian prayer is not merely an individual kind of deal. Christians persist in prayer together. That's why the corporate prayer meeting here is such a cornerstone of our ministry at Antioch and why our worship services are so full of prayer together. Does this mean that you shouldn't pray on your own? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Christ just set forth before his disciples the model of praying in secret in chapter 6 from a sincere heart in a setting where you can be completely vulnerable, open, and honest with God about your particular sins, which would not be appropriate to share in a corporate prayer meeting. Your deepest hurts, your greatest joys and triumphs, but also your most urgent needs before him and before his throne. And we'll see from verse 8 as well that prayer is also an individual activity as Christ applies it to his disciples as individuals. But in verse 7, I don't want you to miss the fact, because it doesn't come out in the New American Standard. You've got to go back to the, the King James Version to really see it. But don't miss the fact here that Christ is addressing his disciples in the plural group. Uh, in the second person plural, these imperatives are given. He's saying, all y'all ask and keep on asking, and so on. But why these three different verbs? Is it just a rhetorical flourish? Is it just to look pretty and to be memorable to us? Well, why not just say, ask, and it will be given to you? 
at this church, at Antioch Presbyterian Church, there's something you need to know about how we approach God's Word and what we think about God's Word. We believe that God's Word is inspired, not just in general, but at every point. There's no word wasted on the page. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Not some scripture, not bits and pieces of scripture, but all scripture, every word is inspired as we have it. And these three verbs, ask, seek, knock, they give us a third feature of the character of our pleading with God in prayer. Not only is it something uh, that we are to do over and over again, not only is it something that we do together, but at Christ's command, we are to pray earnestly, fervently, and urgently. I suggest that the word plead really brings out the sense of these three verbs as Christ puts them together. So what does it mean to plead? As we pray, as we consider how to pray, what does it mean to ask, seek, and knock? Well, have you ever pleaded with someone yourself? Perhaps you've pleaded for mercy from your mom or your dad when you get caught doing something you shouldn't have done. Or if you're a bit older, perhaps it's some other disciplinarian that you remember uh, in high school or in college or in some work environment or even a judge. In that case, pleading is not simply asking bringing a polite request to someone. But pleading, when you're, when you're caught in that desperate situation, it's, it's an undistracted, focused, and committed, and insistent asking. It's, it's something you really press home. Please, oh please, do not punish me. Please, oh please, don't find me guilty. You won't let up until you're given relief and assurance that, oh, you're not in trouble. Well, sometimes... Pleading, it's not just that it's urgent, but it moves through phases in, in this uh, crescendo pattern, uh, like, like a wave building up and getting bigger and bigger, as Christ puts it before us. Uh, boys and girls, I want you to think about the last time perhaps you asked your mom or your dad uh, for something, uh, something you really wanted, when you got to the point of even begging them for it. Uh, you might have started by saying, hey, mom, can I have this? Or that, would it be all right if, if, I, if I, you know, got new markers or a phone or, or whatever the case may be? And then, you know, she gives her answer, you go on with life, and then you start seeking for it, and you get another idea, and you say, hey, mom, what do I have to do to get this or that? You start seeking for the way to actually getting what it is you want, and then, and then you begin knocking, so to speak, and you say, please, mom, please, I absolutely need this or that. All my friends have it. I really want it. It would be so helpful. Well, that's the earnest, even progressive character of our pleading with God in prayer that Christ puts before us. It's not simply bringing a polite request, but pressing and, and seeking and trying to figure out, okay, what is it? Uh, that I need to do, or what is it I need to say for God to, to give to me what it is I need? Well, just as Christ describes the character of such pleading with God in prayer, and we've spent some time exploring that, he immediately describes in the same place the confidence of our pleading with God in prayer, or the source of our confidence. Christians pray with confidence in the God who hears the voices of all those who call upon him in faith. As the psalmist testifies in Psalm 65, verse 2, calling God a hearer of prayers. 
Notice how Christ follows each of these directives in verse 7. Look at the text with me. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. See, there's no doubting in Christian prayer. The one who doubts is as the surf of the sea, tossed around by every wind of doctrine. But here we come to God with boldness and confidence that as we pray according to his will, he hears us and he is faithful to give, to reveal, and to open. There's no virtue in a double-minded prayer or in the doubting man. We are to pray wholeheartedly and with wholehearted confidence in God. Consider the, the, the earnest treasure hunter, the experienced man who goes buried treasure or sunken treasure in the sea. He begins digging or diving if and only if he's confident in the clues that he's following in order to find the treasure that he seeks. He doesn't waste his time digging somewhere uh, unless he's sure beyond uh, a reasonable doubt that he's going to find it. But even he can't be completely confident in those clues. But brother and sister, when we come to God's throne, we can be completely confident that he hears us. And so we are to pray with that confidence. In fact, much more than the most experienced treasure hunter on earth, we are to pray with confidence that we will be heard by God the Father through Christ the Son and that we will find that for which we seek from God. This then leads us into the next part of Christ's lesson on pleading with God. Not only how to plead with God, but why to plead with God in verses 8 to 10. Look at them with me. Christ supports his command in verse 7 with reasons in verse, uh, verses 8 through 10. He first affirms a timeless truth about prayer in verse 8, and then he suggests what I'm calling an absurd alternative in verses 9 and 10. A timeless truth and an absurd alternative. As I already mentioned before, Verse 8 takes Christ's command for his disciples as a group to pray, and now he individualizes it to each of them. He goes into the singular, for every man who asks or is asking will receive or receives. We should understand verse 8 to really say something like this, for everyone asking shall receive, and everyone seeking shall find, and to everyone knocking it shall be opened. Uh, it's still a universal statement, but now it's, it's set in, in the form of, of considering individuals as they ask, seek, and knock. This is a timeless truth that Christ gives about prayer that not only inspires confidence, which he's already set before them in the way we pray, but also motivates us to pray. It gives us the reason why we should pray in the way that he's laid out to regard and, and to employ proper prayer as one of God's appointed means of grace in our lives. You see, the disciples, they needed Christ to teach them to pray. And that means two things, both how to pray, but also the necessity of prayer. They needed that motivation that's given by God in his uh, word and by his spirit. Christians need prayer like fish need water and like all of us need the air that fills our lungs. This is an uncontroversial truth, but, but it's something of an inconvenient truth to most of us, isn't it? The number one thing that Christians say they're unsatisfied with in their own devotional lives is prayer. We live as though we don't need prayer the way Christ says we need it. 
And so he gives us a motivation for prayer. That motivation here in the first part is a timeless truth that is proven over and over again in Scripture, which would have been very familiar to the disciples. Consider just a few examples. The approved prayers of Jacob the patriarch uh, for provision as he makes his sojourn uh, to Aram and then comes back to Canaan. Or uh, the, the prayers of Joshua, Samuel, and the judges for deliverance. And God answers them every time. Or the prayers of King David for protection from Saul and all his enemies. We'll consider one of those prayers this evening in our evening service as we look at Psalm 57. The prayer of King Solomon for wisdom, which we read this morning. Uh, The prayer of Job for vindication. And we're not there yet in the story, but at the end of the book of Job, he is vindicated and declared righteous by God. And then the prayers of our Savior, of Christ himself for his church. And consider what the church looks like today compared to what it looked like during Christ's earthly ministry. The church has grown from a humble, even puny, and insignificant beginnings to be a global expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's amazing how God answers prayer. But what do we make then? We might think, okay, you're talking about Jesus' prayers. What do we make of that prayer of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane? The one which seems to have gone unanswered. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. For the answer to Jesus' desperate plea before the Father, to his earnest and urgent prayer here in the Garden of Gethsemane, one which is repeated and recorded in multiple gospel accounts, was indeed not rescue, it seems, but the cross of Golgotha. At first glance, this is quite the objection to our timeless truth. What do we make of this? Well, consider the following points. First, Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit perfectly when he prayed that prayer. And so in the sinless frailty of his human nature, he was moved by God to pray in such a way. And he did so in perfected humility of his perfect humanity. My Father... If it is possible. It did not demand something of God. He came with that qualification, that conditional. If it is possible. Second, he did not make his request absolutely, but with submission to the will of his Father. Notice how he framed his prayer. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And so he could pray sinlessly for the cup to pass from him, even though he drank fully of that cup of suffering and wrath. And third... As William Perkins put it so well in reference to another incident in Scripture, quote, we must not make the extraordinary practices of the faithful ordinary rules for our imitation, end quote. And so on the basis of these three points, we see that the timeless truth expressed here in Matthew 7, verse 8, God's promise in this verse, it stands firm, even in the face of that uh, most famous prayer meeting of Scripture in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whoever asks, whoever seeks, whoever knocks, according to God's design, in humble submission to his will, as revealed in God's word, will receive, find, and have open to them that which they need for their good and for God's glory. But there's something else we can learn about this timeless truth uh, from the agony of our Savior in Gethsemane. And that is that God the Father withheld not his only Son whom he loved for our salvation. And this act of unfathomable grace 
and goodness and eternal love in the providence and mysterious purposes of God was ordered by him, not out of the blue, but as an answer to the prayers of generations of his children. Indeed, Gethsemane itself was an answer to the prayers of Old Testament saints. The Old Testament contains for us pleading prayer after pleading prayer of God's people for deliverance, for salvation, for relief, for healing, for release of captives, for the promised Messiah to come and to bring in the kingdom of God. Indeed, for God himself to dwell among his people. And the answer to all of these prayers are yes and amen in Christ the Son, whom God the Father sent into the world to live and to die to dispense wisdom, to work miracles, to perform healings, to feed the hungry, to provide help to the helpless, to liberate the oppressed, and to give his life as a ransom for many, to secure for us not only a place in heaven as, a, as an environment of eternal delight, but more to the point to lead us in the way. Out of death, judgment, and the unceasing horrors of hell, and into God's altogether lovely, good, and life-giving presence, not for a time, not for a season, but for all eternity. If you are here this morning, uh, boys and girls or my friends, if you're here and you do not know God in this way, as good and merciful and lovely and life-giving, then I call you, uh, for Christ's sake and in his name to repent, to believe on this Jesus who is himself the answer of the prayers of God's church through all ages, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. For there's no other name in heaven or on earth by which men are saved. Now, remember that Christ uses this timeless truth which presses into the very marrow of the gospel and he uses it to support that direction that he's given his disciples to plead with God in prayer, to be persistent and urgent in their prayers and intelligent in their prayers. In verses 9 and 10, he continues to support that command now with a contrast to what he has just affirmed about God's goodness. He puts forward what I'm calling this absurd alternative to normal fatherly care, as he asks his disciples. If you look at verses uh, 9 and 10 with me, uh, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, that is a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks uh, for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? Where Christ was ministering at this point, it's important to understand that bread and fish, they would have been staples in the daily diets of most people, including children. In fact, if, if you think a bit forward with me in Matthew's Gospel, it's recorded in every one of the four Gospels, the only miracle to be so. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, uh, how does he do it? Well, he does it by multiplying, marvelously multiplying, bread and fish. And who gave him the bread and fish? Well, a little boy did. Where did that little boy get it? probably got it from his father. And so the question he poses here is, what father would refuse basic necessities from his son? What father would withhold the basic things of life from his children? The force of his language, it's impossible to convey literally in English, but the New American Standard does a pretty good job at the end of verse 10. The force of it is something like this. You couldn't conceivably do that, could you? Um, 
As will be made more clear in verse 11, Christ is setting up for us this argument now from the lesser righteousness and, and basic goodness of, of the average dad and, and, that, and then the greater uh, righteousness and perfect goodness of our Heavenly Father, that God surely would not withhold any good thing from His children, for He's infinitely more righteous and good than you. Therefore, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. If we were to end here, we could say persist in pleading with God because God is perfectly good to his children. On the other hand, verses 9 and 10 introduce the third part of our lesson from this text. For what son would ask for a stone or a snake instead of wholesome and nutritious food from his father? I know what some of you boys are thinking. You're thinking, I like playing with rocks, and I would love to have a pet snake. But you're missing the point here. Would you rather have rocks and snakes than having daily food? <laughs> of course not. You need those basic necessities of life. To ask for a rock or snake instead of uh, your basic food, or to ask for a toy instead of what you need, well, that's equally as absurd as an idea um, as that of a father giving a stone or snake to his son when his son needs food instead. So what is it that we are supposed to plead from God? Jesus tells us for what we are to plead from God in verse 11. Look at it with me. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? See, the children of God are to recognize that he's a perfectly good father, and so they are to ask, therefore, for those perfectly good things that he promises to give to them for their good. As we've said before, Christ directs his disciples to do what? We'll complete the sentence again. Persist in pleading with God for the good things necessary for wisdom because God is perfectly good to his children. In the first place, I want you to consider the good things for which we are asking, seeking, and knocking. These, these good things uh, that we are to seek from God, it's like what Saul asked for God to give him as king in Israel. That is wisdom according to godliness, righteousness of life, holiness of character that express love for God and our neighbors in our human relationships. Do you want to judge rightly as Christ commands you to do in uh, verses 1 through 6? Well, then you need wisdom from on high. So that wisdom's a good thing. Let's ask God for it. In, um, in Luke chapter 11, we have a parallel version of this, of this same statement, perhaps delivered in a different sermon. And Christ puts it this way. He said, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so there, what we see is is that the Spirit Himself applies to us the wisdom that comes from the Father through the Son in prayer in Christ's name. The good things we are to seek from God are heavenly things, namely that Holy Spirit Himself, whom we need, whom we've prayed for even this morning, who conforms us to the image of Christ and applying His Word to us, who then sanctifies us, makes us more holy, sets us apart for God's purposes and makes us more wise for godly living in the kingdom of heaven and with our neighbors. But in Matthew's gospel, the focus is not so much on the Spirit himself, though that's not a wrong answer, 
But the focus here is on the good things which the Spirit imparts to us by His grace. Just as we receive Christ's righteousness through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, so too we receive wisdom and holiness of life by Spirit-worked faith in God's Word and by the Holy Spirit's sustaining, upholding grace and ongoing help in our lives. It's not something that we need once and we can move on from. We always need this help. Is this what you are after in your prayers? In your asking, in your seeking, in your knocking, in your pleading with God? This is the staple diet of the daily Christian life. That's Christ's point. And we must not settle for lesser things, for stones and snakes, as long as we lack those better things, those good things promised here in Christ's words to his disciples. These good things we receive from God by grace and grace alone, and not for any merit or effort of our own. We are recipients of grace, not manufacturers of grace. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul put it really well as he rebukes the church in Corinth for their pride, and he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you have not received it? That is, why do you act like you've produced this yourself? God has given this freely to you. Be grateful and humble. Therefore, and in prayer, we should be earnest in pleading with God for good things because pleading in prayer is what we might call the receptive means which God has appointed, which he has given to his church for his grace um, and his spirit-worked faith and godliness in our lives. You see, we earnestly pray through Christ and in his name, and we use those instrumental means he has appointed in doing so. Not that we trust the means. There's no power in prayer as prayer, just like there's no power in, in the Lord's Supper or in baptism in and of themselves. There's not even power in preaching as preaching apart from the Word and the Spirit of God. But we trust in the one who has appointed these means for our use. We trust him to bless that which he has given to us for our good and his glory. And why can we trust God the Father to give us these good things for which we ask in Christ's name? We've already considered it, but Christ brings it to us again in verse 11. Because not only are the things that we ask for good things for us, but our God is a good father to us. It's not just about what he does for us. It's about who he is to us. We ask for good things which come from our good father. Look at verse 11 one more time. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Christ's point here is not to emphasize the evil of mankind, but to set it up as a point of contrast then to the incomparable uh, and unique goodness of his heavenly Father. Address the fathers in the room. Brothers, you know your hearts. You know the selfishness that yet remains. It's keenly felt by each and every one of us, isn't it? But which of you could bring yourself to forsake your children? Can you imagine doing that? There are some of us in this room who have experienced the pain and the devastation caused by a wicked father who forsakes his children. 
And I hope that the Spirit of God would keep us fathers in this room away from such abominable evil in relationship to our kids. But even so, if basically selfish and self-serving men like you and like me frequently take care of our children and shame those who do not, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Do you see the contrast that Christ has put before us in this verse? And so I ask you, Christian, what are you supposed to plead from God who is himself your good father? You are to plead for good things. And you plead for those good things which come from your good heavenly father. At this point, I hope that God's word and the ministry of God's word has stirred up your spirit to desire that which Christ sets before you. To desire these good things promised by your father who is in heaven to those who ask him. And if you leave here today and you're desiring a fuller measure of, of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, holy-making presence in your life, if you desire Christ-like wisdom for daily living and judgment and relationships, if you desire greater righteousness of life, then there will be much cause for rejoicing indeed. But if that is all we can say as we go forth from this place after this sermon, we will have missed the forest for the trees. Because there's a difference between wanting something and enjoying something, isn't there? In this case, there's a world of difference between wanting what someone can give you or do for you and enjoying that someone for who he is. God promises good things to those who ask him to do so in faith, but he does so because of who he is as a good father who delights in his children. And so then, do you truly delight in him? The text presses that question on us, doesn't it? Not just how are you praying, but do you delight in the one to whom you pray? Christ directs his disciples to persist in, in pleading with God for the good things necessary for wisdom. But he does so because God is perfectly good to his children. That he is altogether delightful and lovely. Such persistent pleading that he, that he commands his disciples to, to engage in for wisdom, it's utterly impossible for those of us who do not delight in God as heavenly father, who do not delight in a heavenly father who is perfectly good to his children. And what is it then to delight in this God as father? Imagine what it looks like when children love and delight in their parents. Think about it. There's this strong bond of affection and love, of, of trust and attachment. There's, there's the eager and earnest desire and willingness to spend time together doing whatever, playing ball or playing with dolls, reading books or, or singing songs. And there's also, uh, as a child matures, usually a commitment to, to listen to, uh, not just obey, but to remember the words and, and to learn the personal and family histories of their parents. Delighting in God and Father, it, it's analogous. It's similar. We can, we can kind of, in some faint way, draw a connection between these, these two. We simply love him from our hearts. We trust him. Uh, we desire to be bonded to him through Christ ever closer. Uh, there's also an eager and an earnest desire and willingness to meet with him in private devotions and in corporate worship, in reading scripture, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and even in fellowship with other Christians. 
There's also then a sincere and serious-minded commitment to learn as much as we can of the things of God expressed in his word, to learn about the history of his mighty acts of redemption and the extension of his church. But such delight in the Father, it is utterly unattainable for those who have not his Son as Savior and his Spirit as Sanctifier. Apart from Christ's salvation, there is no hope of relationship with God as Father. There's no hope of adoption into his family. And apart from the Spirit's blessing of the new birth from above, there is no faith to be had, no confidence to possess in prayer, no trust in his timeless truth, no motivation to plead with him at all. How then can such faith be worked in us? How does the Spirit take hold of the hearts of men? We said it together at the end of the scripture reading. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. And so consider these words concerning Christ the Son and his heavenly Father from Romans 8, 32 as you hear them. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, all good things? What a generous and good God this is that we're dealing with. What a self-sacrificing Savior we have in Jesus Christ who instructs us in his wisdom. What a blessed and delightful Heavenly Father we have revealed to us in his word. Let us delight in him. Let us delight in him even and especially as we are asking, seeking, and knocking for those good things he promises to his children. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven above, we bow ourselves before you with humble adoration at the revelation of your word in Christ, of your goodness and your compassion, your mercy and your truth. You are a good father to your children. And we ask you, Lord, give us your spirit. We come seeking, Lord, what must we do to have a fuller measure of holiness and righteousness in our lives? We come knocking, Lord, open the way for us in Christ that we might be more like him. How urgently and desperately we need you and your wisdom for our daily lives, certainly for our religious devotions and spiritual exercises, but above all, for our delight in you, our Father. Lord, we wish to experience this delight, to taste and see that you are good. And we pray that you would impress upon us the truth of your word, even this morning as we go from this place, that you would be glorified as we interact with one another, as we engage with our neighbors, as we go forth singing, all to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.